so much. Thank you. Kia ora Church. Lovely to be with you here this morning. Uh, lovely. It is a privilege to be here. Uh, thanks for choosing this day. You know, uh, It's a great day to try and preach. Uh, no, it is. It is. It's, it's um, is there any way I can turn that one slightly down? It's just I can't see the glare on my iPad. Um, how you doing? You're right. Jesus is still on the throne. It's okay. It's okay. Um, thank you so much, brother. Good man. Um, I want to talk to you uh, about God. Uh, I've been singing one of my favorite hymns in my own devotional time recently, uh, Be Thou My Vision. And it goes something like this. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Naught be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. God is great. He is beautiful. Uh, one of the theologians I like to read is a guy called Jonathan Edwards, and his wife stumbled into his office one day, and she looked at him and she said, Jonathan, what are you doing? And he was sitting, leaning back in his chair just with his eyes closed. And he said, I'm contemplating the supreme excellency of the divine nature. And which is a fancy way of saying he was thinking about God. He was thinking about who God is and what God has done. Uh, and sometimes I meet people and, you know, uh, I'll engage with them and I'll find out, oh, they're not a Christian. Oh, that's great. You know, nice to hear you. Nice to engage with you. And then at some point they'll find out that I'm a Christian and they'll go, oh, Sean, you know, no, I, I don't believe in God. And there's a little bit of a condescending tone there. And I go, oh, that's interesting. Which God don't you believe in? Because I might not believe in that God either. And this kind of throws them a little bit. They're not quite sure what to do with that. And so uh, then I, I kind of tease out their understanding of who God is. And a lot of the times I'm able to say, you know what? I don't believe in that God either. That's good that you don't believe in that God. That's not the God that I love and serve. That's not the God that I've given myself to. That's not the God that has revealed himself to us. And so uh, I kind of, in my effort to try and help people understand God a little bit better, I've written my own kind of parable. And so I'd like to read you my parable this morning. It goes like this. There once was a father who had two daughters. The youngest said to her father, I can't wait anymore. Life is short. You only live once. Give me what's mine and I'm out. So the father sold shares in his business and gave the young girl her inheritance. It wasn't long before her bags were packed and she was off on her OE. Free at last, the girl decided to live her best life. The parties were wild, the boyfriends were many, and fun times never seemed to end. But after she'd gone through all of her money, her friends quickly dropped her, and her lovers weren't interested in the relationship, and they didn't see any need to help her out. She was left hungry and alone. So she found a job cleaning toilets and mopping floors, but she could barely afford to pay rent in a trashy room, let alone a decent meal. After a while, she came to her senses and thought, I wonder if my father would hire me in one of his businesses. At least then I could have three meals a day, a warm room to stay in, and not have to starve to death. So she decided to go home, back to her dad. 
On the long walk home, she thought to herself, I'll say to him, Dad, I have messed up big time. I don't deserve to be called your daughter, but please give me a job and I'll try my best to earn back your respect. When she was still a long way off, her father heard news that she was returning, so he prepared for her arrival. When she came to the town, she found out where he was. She saw him. She ran to him, falling before him on her knees. She started her speech. Dad, I've messed up. I'm so sorry. I have done what is wrong. I've messed up my life. I don't deserve to be called your daughter ever again. The father's heart was pounding. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to some of his associates, quick, bring me the soldiers. They grabbed her and held her while the father watched. Looking into her eyes, he said to her, my daughter is dead. You are nothing to me. You took everything you had. You squandered it. There is nothing here for you. And the soldiers dragged her out. At this time, her older sister was coming in, and she approached the family. She heard the commotion and screaming, calling over one of the associates. She asked, what's going on? They told her, your sister has come home, but your father has rejected her and is sending her away. The older sister ran to her father and tried to talk to him, but he wasn't really listening. The daughter said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but now you reject your younger daughter and send her away? Why don't you kill the ungrateful brat? Her father said, daughter, if you want her dead, make the arrangements. She is nothing to me. And he went back to the dining hall to eat his meal and talk with his friends. Not the story you were expecting, was it? In fact, I love telling the story to churches because I can feel the reaction from up here. It's like, no, that's not how the story goes, Sean. You've got it wrong. Because you're thinking of Jesus' story. You're thinking of the prodigal son. You're thinking of a father who waits, a father who longs to have his son back. You're thinking of Jesus' vision of a God who cares so deeply. He watches the horizon day in and day out. You're thinking of who God is. And you're hearing my story and you're going, everything in you is reacting. No, that's not what he's like. And that's why I told the story that way. Because I think sometimes we become so familiar with Jesus' stories. We don't really listen to them anymore. You see, in the first century, when Jesus told that story of a father who ran, that would have been shocking. For an older man to run to embrace a disobedient, disrespectful, dishonoring son? Are you kidding me? I imagine people would have gone, oh, what's going on? What kind of God would do this? And yet I do wonder sometimes if Christians don't think, mm, maybe the daughter deserved it. 
I wonder if Christians sometimes go, well, you know, the Father's got a point. And somehow we condemn ourselves. We don't fully believe that God could be that good, that gracious, that kind. And it drives us. It motivates us. Everything we believe about God shapes every facet of our lives. I mean, can you imagine God being like the father of that girl? You're nothing to me. You're dead. Can you imagine if God wasn't the God of second chances? If God wasn't the God of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, sixth chances, seventh chances. I remember Jesus saying something about 77 times seven. I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't be that good. You can't be that gracious. Surely not. And yet the father waits. He waits for those to return. Those who belong to him. He looks out daily on the horizon. He is the waiting God. He's the God who cares so deeply. He longs for people's return. That's the kind of God we serve. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take you through a meditation on 1 John, particularly the first chapter. And I want to take you through some passages that just reveal to us what kind of a God it is that we serve. And twice in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John reminds us that no one has ever seen God. God is this invisible being. And you kind of think, well, why emphasize that, John? Why tell us that God is this unseen God in 1 John 4.12 and 1 John 4.20? He repeats it, God whom they have not seen. Why emphasize this? And I think what John's wanting to do is trying to say, God is bigger than what we can imagine. The theological word for this is transcendent. Our puny minds cannot grasp an infinite, all-powerful, all-majestic God. You know, Madison was reading a passage and God has to hide Moses in a rock to see his goodness because if he were to be in the full presence of God, every cell from his body would just explode. You can't withstand the full, awesome glory of God. That's why even the angels cover their eyes and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. They dare not look at his majesty. Day in and day out. And God is bigger than what we can imagine. And so don't limit God. Don't limit him. I mean, I, I always love thinking about creation, you know. Uh, I used to get my youth, I used to tell them to cup their hands and, and look at what's inside their hands. And then I'd say, you know, tell it to do something. And they'd look at me as if I'm a weird guy and they go, Sean, there's nothing there. And I'm like, no, 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 there's lots there. You know, there's millions of quarks and gluons and little subatomic particles. There's so much in your hands. And you're looking at something and telling it to do something and nothing is happening. And yet God speaks to nothing and our whole universe comes into existence. I don't know about you, but damn, that's impressive. I'm like, Wow. You have got skills, Lord. 
to speak to nothing and a whole universe is formed. You see, sometimes we limit God by our own capacity. God is not limited by your limitations. In fact, sometimes I, uh, I approach the Lord and I say, well, look, Lord, I just, I just want you know, to understand who you're dealing with. I have these limitations. I have these things that might get in the way. And I felt like God said to me once, you know, Sean, I factored in your stupidity. It's okay. It's not like you are able to prohibit God from doing what he wants to do. In fact, sometimes I, I get kind of chuffed with my own limitations and I, I get, oh, look at this. I'm so limited. People will never believe this is me. It has to be God. And yet sometimes, especially in the Bible, we want to use our excuses, our limitations to say, oh God, we can't participate in what you're doing. When we should be going, yay God, I, I, you're fully aware of all the limitations that I have and you still want to use me because you are that good at what you do. In 1 John chapter 1, he writes this. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father. God is a Father. Now, unfortunately, I can't take the, for granted the fact that, you know, people have good fathers. Unfortunately, we live in a broken world now and and some people's experiences are horrific. Some people's experiences are horrendous. But don't bring that baggage to God because he's a different kind of father. He's not a father who says, you're dead to me. Get out of here. He's a father who waits for your return. He's a father who embraces those who come to him despite their mistakes, despite what they've done wrong. This is an extraordinary father. This is a father who longs for fellowship. The eternal life that was with the father and this was revealed to us. We declared to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with the son, Jesus Christ. This is a God who longs to connect with people. This is a God who longs to know people. This is a God who invites us in. Despite our mistakes, despite our baggage, despite all our limitations, despite all our brokenness, this is a God who says, don't worry. I'm pretty good at fixing things. I'm pretty good at healing things. God is this relational God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, This is the message we have heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. I love that. If I was to offer a contemporary translation, I'd say that God is pure and there's no shade in Him. There's nothing dodgy in God. There's no darkness. There's no hidden, negative, destructive agenda in God. He is pure. That's what the image of light means. It means that he's, he is incapable of having a destructive, negative thought or doing anything bad or evil. God is pure. He is good. 
And the thing I've learned about light, uh, I discovered this recently. I was traveling and I was in a new motel and uh, I didn't quite check, uh, you know, how light it was when I went to bed that night and I, I turned off all the lights and, you know, Something woke me up at about three o'clock in the morning and I'm feeling for the phone and the phone's not where I thought it was and I get up and I kick my small toe on the side of some table that was clearly demonic. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, please help me. And I'm in pain and I'm like, where is the light switch? And I'm feeling around in the darkness and eventually I find it and as the switch goes on, I'm like, oh, everything's clear now. I can see. It's great. That's what God does. See, we fumble around in the darkness. Wait, God, I can do this myself. Like my little toddler. I do it myself, Dad. I do it myself. And sometimes that's our attitude to God. God, just, just wait. I will do it myself. And we always end up suffering the consequences. And I've been like, okay, Lord, standing there. Like I stand there with my Mia. Okay, Mia, that milk bottle is too heavy for you. I know what's going to happen. Do you want my help? Oh, you want to do it yourself? Okay. And sure enough, now there is milk everywhere. (laughs) And that's why we do teamwork, Mia. That's why God wants to empower us. He wants to direct us. He wants to bring light to situations. Because otherwise, we're just fumbling around in the darkness, trying to do it ourselves, and inevitably, we're the ones who's going to get hurt. Not because God doesn't care, but because God respects your freedom. But he wants to help. He wants to bring light. In verse uh, 7, it says this, If we confess our sins, God who is faithful. Can you imagine if God wasn't faithful? Imagine if God said, you know what? No, tired of you. No more. Be gone. I mean, that's a terrifying thought. I mean, people will let us down. People I can understand, but, but imagine if God let us down. Imagine if God decided, you know what, shift, delete. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty drastic thing. I mean, no, no, please don't. I mean, the whole of the Old Testament is basically God proving time and time and time and time and time again and again and again and again and again. Israel, here I am, just waiting to give you light. Israel, don't do, no. Here we go again. And God is relentless in his faithfulness. Sometimes it's a little unnerving because I'm like, whoa, can we just push pause? There's some things I'd like to do. No, no, no. That's the wrong way, Sean. Don't go that way. His faithfulness endures forever and ever and ever. But the next part of this verse does a little bit unnerve me because it says, if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just. Now that's the part I'm not so keen on sometimes because God's justice means his commitment to rectify that which is wrong or not the way it's supposed to be. And when you've got a God who's committed 
to restoration, a God who's committed to transformation, a God who's relentless, who will not let that issue slide because he knows it's beneficial for you that he pursues it. That's what God's justice is. His utter commitment to rectify, to restore, to make things right the way that they are supposed to be. And sometimes I want to like, no, Lord, just wait, just wait. No, just, just push pause. I, I don't want that. And God's like, no, it's good for you. But thankfully, God only likes to deal with one issue at a time. I remember praying and saying, oh, God, you know, once we get this thing sorted out, it's going to be sweet because then I'm all good. And I felt the Lord say, no, there are more. There are more issues. I'm just not overwhelming you with them all because God is very pastoral in his care for us. He's very loving and kind and compassionate. I love Philip Yancey's quote, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. You see, sometimes we want the first part of that. Yay, God, love me just the way I am. Sweet, I've got nothing to do. Sweet, I can do no wrong. Sweet, I'm all good. But no, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. His love is a transformative love because he knows what's best for us. He's the father who cares deeply about us. God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you imagine if God didn't forgive? Can you imagine if God was a vindictive God? You know, sometimes I notice Christians want mercy for themselves, but they want justice for others. It's an interesting thing. And yet God is the God who is committed to forgiveness. That means he's committed to cleaning up the mess, to fixing the mess, to making things right between us and him, but also between each other. He's the God who is faithful and just to forgive, to deal with our brokenness, to repair us, and then to clean up the mess. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I love that because sometimes we get our hands dirty. Sometimes we live in a world where uh, things happen and, and we respond badly or we are so broken we do the wrong thing. And yet here is God in his goodness committed to cleaning up the mess. Just like me with Mia standing there going, well, Mia, now there's a big mess, isn't there? What are we going to do now, Mia? Oh, I think we need a cloth. Okay, cool, let's go. And together we clean up the mess. It's what God's committed to in our lives. Because God knows we're not perfect. I used to have a sign at the top of my church that said, uh, on the entrance, no perfect people allowed. I know you can question that with Jesus being perfect and all. Jesus was definitely allowed at my church. It's okay. But I was talking about generally for people. Because there's an understanding that, hey, we've all got stuff. We're all on the journey. I'm not perfect. Haven't arrived yet. Every day, Lord, help me. Be who you want me to be. Help me to reflect 
your son, Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who cares so deeply about us. He's so committed to rectifying, to restoring, to making right. Because the thought of a God who wasn't like that is terrifying. Imagine the Greek god Zeus with a lightning bolt just waiting for you to mess up. Bam! Smash that one. Waiting for someone else to mess up. No, God's not like that. And yet I don't know how many times I've met people and that's their perception of God. I'm like, where did that creep in? Where did you pick that up? It's certainly not in the scriptures. I mean, listen to uh, 1 John 3. I'll I'll read from verse uh, 19. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and we'll reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And yeah, John is wrestling with this thing. Sometimes our hearts, you know, sometimes we approach God and, and, and we begin to bring up the past. Oh Lord, remember that time. Remember that time when I messed this up. Remember the time when I did this. And I feel like God would say, hey, hey, we've dealt with that. Let's move on. Sometimes we're stuck in the past and our hearts condemn us when God has actually forgiven us. And yeah, John says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Even the stuff you're not aware of. Even the stuff that you've got forgotten. He's got perfect recall. At any moment, he can bring it all up, but he chooses not to. Imagine if my girls came to me, and every time they came to me, I was like, right, here's the list of things you did wrong. It would be crushing. Now when my kids come to me, I'm like, hey, I love you. I care about you. That's how God feels about us, his children. He cares deeply. In 1 John 4, 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have conquered them. For the one who is greater than you, so the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Sometimes we can look at circumstances in the world and we can be overwhelmed. Oh God, there's an issue in Israel. Oh God, there's an issue in Ukraine. Oh God, there's an issue in Syria. Oh God, there's an issue here. Oh, and we can look at it all and we can just be overwhelmed. And the scriptures say, hey, don't stress. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God hasn't abandoned us. Why? Because in 1 John 4, 8, we have the beautiful declaration that God is love. God is love. Now, you've got to be careful with this word love because it's a bit of a slippery word lately. Love is love. And I'm like, no, that doesn't define the word. Repetition is not clarification or explanation. It's like when my wife says, you remember George? George, George. And I go, nope. All you've done is repeat his name. You haven't told me who you're talking about. See, 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. He's defining it for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. When we say God is love, we're saying look at Jesus, the perfect embodiment of what love looks like. His care for people, his commitment to people, his concern for people. His 
tenderness towards people, his truth-telling towards people, and his mercy. John is saying, look at the whole life of Jesus because it tells us a particular story about who God is and what God is like. Is that your vision of God this morning? Because remember, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So this unseen God, this invisible God, has made himself visible in Jesus, in the life of Jesus. In every encounter with Jesus, we get to see who God is and what God is like. We get to see and behold a God who cares so deeply he would go to the cross for us. Who else would do that for you? Who else would give their life for you? It's not just any person. This is God himself who cares so deeply. And this is the calling of the church. This is our calling. This is what we are called to, to know this God and make this God known. To look and behold, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Behold who he is and what he's like and then be so amazed and so astounded by how good and beautiful and kind and merciful and compassionate that he is and be transformed by that so that we become good, kind, compassionate, merciful. So that when people look at us, they go, whoa, what is it? I see something different about you. I remember before I became a Christian, I was hanging out with these Christians because I felt sorry for them. I pitied them. These poor Christians. So vulnerable, so deceived. But there was something about them. Something different. I couldn't put my finger on it. And I hassled them. I, I gave them hell. You idiots, why do you believe that? Why do you think that? No, that's dumb, Kelly. Don't say that. But they had this love inside of them. This love that could take the broken pieces of my life and arrange it into a mosaic that tells the story of a God who cares deeply. A God who actually gives a damn about our lives, about what's going on in our lives. That's the God we worship this morning. That's the God we love. That's the God we declare. That's the God we have to reflect to others. So that when people say, oh, you know, I don't believe in God. You're like, which one? Let me tell you a story about who my God is. Let me tell you a story about how good and how faithful and how kind and how generous and how compassionate, how merciful, how forgiving, how loving he has been to me. Let me brag about God. I think that's what theologians are actually called to do. Brag about how amazing God is. Because hopefully you'll get it. 
Hopefully a light switch goes on and you'll stand there and go, love, you are good. Does that make sense? Because let me tell you, church, that there's a world out there that needs to know this. There's a world that is desperate to know this because they're fumbling around in darkness and they're getting hurt in the process. They're confused in the process. They're a little bit scared in the process. They're not sure which way to go because they're just trying to do the best they can in the darkness that they inhabit. And we are carriers of light. Don't hide that light. Let it shine. Let's just close our eyes. Gracious God, I pray for a revelation of you. I pray for each one of us here today. Would you reveal yourself more and more to us? Would our hearts be strangely warmed? Would our lives encounter the peace of your spirit? Would we catch a glimpse like Moses of your glory? Would we look at Jesus and see the face of the invisible God who has made himself visible and who cares deeply? God, I pray by your spirit, would you help each and every one of us to know you? And would that knowledge transform our lives? Right where you are, why don't you just take a moment to just ask God to reveal himself to you? Why don't you, where you are, just, everyone's got their eyes closed. You just spend a moment with Jesus. And ask the Spirit to speak to you. Ask the Spirit to highlight something to you. Maybe this week God's going to reveal something of his character to you. Maybe today God wants to show you his rectifying love in some specific situation. You just do some business with God.